The first big off-season catch is in the net. How will Manny Machado do in San Diego? We'll have player news and HQ commentaries next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 22nd. It's my daughter Olivia's birthday and show number six of the 2019 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Manny Machado signing in San Diego, Mike Moustakas signing in Milwaukee, and some National League players who aren't third basemen. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Justin Upton, Tyler Clippert, and some big names with overstated health risks. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer comment, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Minnesota left-handed pitcher Lewis Thorpe. In our Market Watch Position Previews segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at first baseman. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about my first annual Wonk Draft. It's another Big Friday News and Comment Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Manny Machado is a Padre. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Comment Edition, our League Watch News reports... Jock Thompson is on deck with player news from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report, and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitching analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Well, we've been waiting for quite a while for some big news to come out of the uh, major leagues, and finally we got some. One of the two big free agents on the market, Manny Machado, a third baseman and shortstop, has signed with the Padres. Big, big news. This was covered in Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com by our own Jock Thompson from Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, what does Jock say about Manny Machado as a Padre? Oh, and all kinds of ramifications, of course, of this kind of a deal. $300 million over 10 years, an opt-out clause after the fifth season. Uh Early reports say that Machado will take over as the third baseman in San Diego. Uh, that leaves uh, second baseman of the future, Luis Urias, projected as a shortstop on opening day with uh, Ian Kinsler, the recently signed veteran Ian Kinsler, manning second base. But uh, clearly Machado's arrival in this this, uh, this five-year with a five-year opt-out clause kind of uh, accelerates San Diego's competitive window, making the uh, uh, the season-long shortstop second base makes dependent upon how well Urias and Kinsler perform. Uh, San Diego has uh, shortstop of the future, Fernando Tatis. Uh, still looks like he's likely to open at uh, AAA El Paso, but if not, things don't go well at both shortstop and second base in San Diego, he could be up uh, sooner rather than later, unless there's uh, there, there may not be any reason to hold him back if they're struggling. Uh, Machado is... Uh, Average more than 34 home runs a season over the past four years, most of that time in Canyon Yards and uh, friendly parks in the AL East. But uh, Petco doesn't seem to be as uh, horribly a home run killer as it used to be. Um, and uh, I wouldn't expect too much of a drop to happen. Uh, Inosaris uh, indicated that uh, a nice piece that Inosaris wrote saved for hitters with right-handed pull power, and that's Machado. Um 
it doesn't hurt them that much. So expect Machado to flirt with 30 home runs again uh, and uh, even more potential hitting a better and improving lineup with uh, good guys ahead of him. Uh, the RBI totals could get way up there. Uh, not a bad signing, I think, for uh, the Padres, definitely, and certainly not for fantasy players. I wouldn't discount Machado that much moving into San Diego. No, I think he's going to put up a ton of counting stats. It'll be interesting to see what his stolen base situation looks like because you remember, of course, that when Machado first splashed into the league as a fantasy asset, part of his appeal was he stole a lot of bases. And then uh, over time in Baltimore, that shrunk and shrunk largely because Buck Showalter and the Orioles approach or concept was not favorable towards stolen bases then he gets to LA and he starts stealing a few more and he he had a few last year as well what does it look like for the stolen base side of things now that he's in San Diego yeah that's a good question it'll certainly be interesting to see it may be that the guys ahead of him in the lineup will be the ones doing most of the running uh it, it will certainly be interesting to see how the Padres play that you know the other question becomes when you're paying the guy that much money and he's primarily a, uh, a an RBI power guy. Do you want him running on the base paths where, of course, there becomes some risk in terms of uh, something happening? So it'll be interesting to see whether they turn him loose or not. 14 stolen bases last year, nine the year before, but none the year before that, as I mentioned. And, of course, so much of it depends on uh, what's the manager's philosophy. There's They might be worried about injury risk. Uh, they, Machado has had some injuries and Stealing bases is hard work, and you got to throw yourself on the ground a lot when you're sliding, and it causes, uh, you know, impact-related injuries. So I wonder if they are going to soft-pedal that. But I wonder also if when you're toting around a $30 million contract, the manager's not in too good of a, too good of a position to tell you what to do and what not to do if you want to pad your stats. That's sure true. <laughs> Very definitely. Something else, Nick, that you said that interested me was this whole idea of the, the follow-on impacts, especially with uh, Urias and Kinsler and Fernando Tatis Jr., you, now you mentioned if, this, if either Kinsler or Urias gets off to a slow offensive start, then Tatis could be waiting in the wings and get an early call-up. But the reverse is also true, right? If they both do well, there's no reason for San Diego to hustle Tatis to the big leagues. In fact, it's to their benefit not to for service time reasons and arbitration and all those kind of things. So what it seems to me is... If you're coming up to a draft and you haven't already settled on how you're going to approach things with these kinds of players, I think you have to downgrade all three of them a little bit on playing time risk. Yeah, I think you do. I mean, there's, there's certainly playing time risk for all three. Uh, Kinsler and, and Urias have got to perform. Uh, and uh, uh, Tatis could, in fact, be kept in the minor leagues for most of the season if they're getting good performance out of uh, their second base shortstop combination. And I should say, uh, I forgot to mention, speaking of stolen bases, as we were a minute ago, we are projecting Machado for double digits at Baseball HQ, I think 11 or 12. And uh, when I look at Kinsler, just briefly, as far as stolen bases are concerned, as as a 36-year-old guy last year, 16 stolen bases and 14 home runs. Now, only a 240 batting average and a 300 on base, which is kind of shaky, especially if they have aspirations to bat him at the top of the lineup. But this guy seems to have some gas in the tank, Nick really could have something left. I mean, this is a not that far. A 15-15 season is certainly reasonable, and the 2020 season might actually happen with uh, with Kinsler. And if the batting average, if he gets a good hit rate, batting average creeps up toward 250, 260, you know, there's a fairly valuable piece. Another 
somewhat overshadowed signing of a third baseman, Mike Moustakas, who was on the free agent market. This is a fairly sad and odd story because he's a good player and he just couldn't seem to get any traction in the free agent market. He sat un- unloved most of the preseason last year. He signs a little bit earlier this year, going straight back to Milwaukee. Uh, One-year deal, so clearly he's trying to build up his his uh, attractiveness for another future free agent run. But in the meantime, he's in Milwaukee. What does that mean for Mike Moustakas? Well, you know, this has indeed been a very strange free agent market. And uh, Mike Moustakas goes back to a very, a very good situation in Milwaukee. Uh, certainly he's going to play third base. Travis Shaw will stay at second base where he finished last season uh, after Moustakas came on board. Um, and and Moustakas will get to play the entire season in a very favorable ballpark for him. If you look at, look at last season, look at what, uh, what Moustakas did over the course of the season, uh, 28 home runs, 95 RBIs, uh, actually 38 home runs a year before. So, you know, uh, not a, a little bit of a down season, but going back month by month after he arrived in, um, in Milwaukee, eight home runs in August and September and, September was actually repressed. We had five home runs in August, three in September, only an 8% home run per fly rate, which is really very unlucky. Historically, that's one of, that was his lowest rate of the year in that particular, in, in September. Uh, more likely up around 14% for the, for the, uh, the rest of the year. So, you know, maybe, maybe really if that hadn't had the bad luck, could have had six home runs in September. So there's, here's a guy who likes, likes where he is, likes Miller Park. Uh, could do very, very well having a full season there. I also like Travis Shaw in this deal. He's now up around 80% of the playing time on our Baseball HQ depth chart with most of it coming at second base. And again, every time something solidifies in one place, it gets worse for somebody somewhere else in the playing time mix. And I think... uh, Again, there's a prospect in the mix, Keston Hyura, who's a top prospect, and a lot of analysts were saying that he might get called up relatively quickly into the situation in Milwaukee because at the time they had no second base, third base was was going to be Travis Shaw, and there was a question mark otherwise. Now that question has been answered, and it looks like Shaw and Mike Moustakas settle in as the primary guys are going to play. And we've downgraded Keston Hyura to just 5% of the playing time on the year, which means basically September only. Right. And I think that's, uh, you know, given unless somebody gets hurt, that's probably what's going to happen. And probably not a bad thing for Keston Hyura to get another year in the minor leagues and, and finish what's good development for what looks to be so far in terms of what he's done in the minors, an, an excellent and outstanding major league career once he gets called up and settles into a role in Milwaukee. Bad news, however, for anybody who drafted him on the hope that he was going to get some kind of fairly early call-up in a Milwaukee infield that at the time looked like uh, it might be more welcoming. Another guy who figures to lose out here is Hernan Perez. He's kind of a super utility guy, but his playing time has been downgraded at Baseball HQ now to about 40% total spread across second, third, short in the outfield. Right. I think Perez certainly gets a big hit with this signing and with the uh, firming up of that uh, infield situation. All right, moving along, another signing, this one may be not quite so significant, Sergio Romo, the relief pitcher, who did such a good job in Tampa last year uh, as an opener and a closer, (laughs) to use the modern terminology, stays in Florida, but he goes to the National League, signs with the Marlins. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. What is Sergio Romo's role likely to be with the fairly nondescript Marlins? Well, an interesting question, because you have to ask, why would the Marlins be signing Sergio Romo? 
and the answer may be to trade him as uh, the season progresses, and that means they need to build up his value. At this point, we're projecting that Drew Steckenrider will get most of the saves out of the Miami bullpen, but uh, that could be that 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 idea, that projection could be significantly diminished with Romo arriving. Romo reestablished uh, the ninth inning, his ninth inning viability last season with the Rays. He saved 25 games uh, and, and even sometimes served as the opener for Tampa Bay, so that made him unavailable in the ninth inning. Uh, Dom was back up to double figures, uh, just barely made it over 10, but it was there, BPV 122. Uh, and his lowest BPV in his 11-year major career, 104. So this is a guy who's been a, uh, a semi-elite pitcher throughout his career, uh, Steckenrider finished 2019 as the Marlins' closer. Uh, was much better, though, during the first half than he was uh, when he wasn't closing than he was after July 1st. After July 1st, Steckenrider's XERA was 4.49. So watch what happens here as the season gets ready to start. Will Romo get the first uh, shot at the closer deal with the idea being that uh, he could build up his value and then they could trade him off for some, uh, uh, for some valuable prospect pieces uh, as we hit the trade deadline? Well, right now, Baseball HQ is projecting Romo for 14 saves, about a $6 player with an ERA hovering right around 4. So it will be interesting to see how that fits in because we have Steckenrider for getting the majority of the saves. But I I think your analysis is pretty accurate here, Nick, because there's no reason for them to sign Romo except as some kind of poker chip, basically. Right. I mean, uh, you know, this is not a team that I got to keep him. It's a one-year deal. They're not going to keep the guy. They're not going to compete. So uh, why pay him money? Uh, the reason they're paying him money is to, uh, I, I really think, is to build him up and trade him off for something better as the trade deadline approaches. So, uh, you know, it may be a good to take a chance on Sergio Romo and some saves, but at the same time, figure out, figure that by the end of July, he may be gone somewhere else where he's not getting saves. It'll be interesting to see whether the Marlins also use him as the opener. They might be tinkering around with that idea and if so could boost his innings a bit which wouldn't hurt uh we're still giving drew steckenrider 60 percent of the saves and uh here here's the other thing about that even if romo gets the full-time nod as the closer for the first part of the year miami's a pretty bad team and baseball hq research has shown that the most important statistic there is in how many saves a reliever is going to get is how many game, how many wins the team gets. And uh, this Marlins team doesn't look like it's going to be piling up too many wins. They're not going to pile up a lot of them. That certainly will impact what, uh, what goes on here, definitely. In St. Louis, uh, right-hander Carlos Martinez, it was announced, will not be throwing for two weeks. He had an MRI with no structural damage to his shoulder that he had problems with last year. But he has told the team he doesn't think his shoulder is as strong as it needs to be. This has some ramifications for Carlos Martinez's draft status, obviously, but longer term as well. Uh, what, what do you make of this Carlos Martinez story? It's, a, it's a, at best, a very difficult situation. Uh, and I would make me very leery of Carlos Martinez at this point because we don't know what the role is going to be. Uh, Carlos Martinez averaged uh, 200 innings a season from 2015 to 2017. Last season was uh, back and forth off the DL uh, and only pitched 119 innings. Uh, D health grade from, from Baseball HQ uh, and ended up, finished the year pitching high leverage innings out of the bullpen. And even saved some games in September, a 1.93 ERA in September coming out of the bullpen, although his XERA was 4.22 and control was not very good, 5.8. So uh, a BPV of only only 56. So, you know, it's hard to know what's going to happen here. 
if the shoulder is weak and he can't he can't start, he may wind up in the bullpen. The closing situation is tenuous in St. Louis. Could he wind up as the closer? Sure, that might happen. Um, and if that happens, you've got a rotation slot that's open. Might might go to Alex Reyes, who is one of the top pitching prospects in baseball. A very fluid situation, uh, and in some ways, maybe a very ugly situation. Uh, word out of the front office in St. Louis that uh, uh, the quote was something like, somebody should have been paying attention to this, this, and um, you'd think a guy with a sore shoulder would be on some kind of a regimen to get it strengthened. Uh, sounds like they were not too happy with this entire situation. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Well, I hope they're not looking at Carlos Martinez. It's the team's job to say, you know, get yourself to the doctor, get yourself into rehab, and, and manage that situation. You have a very prized uh, asset, if you think of it in those terms, and it just seems like if the team is looking at how he was managed, then that's the team's problem, not Martinez's problem. And I think that's the way it sounded to me, is that that's not Martinez's problem. Somebody should have been monitoring the situation a lot more closely than they were. It also looks a bit muddy to me, Nick, because uh, you, you look at Martinez and you say, well, maybe he could go to the bullpen and pick up some saves and they could put Alex Reyes into the rotation and take up those uh, lost innings. But then you look at Alex Reyes has not exactly been the model of health either. Tommy John in 2017, then he had some kind of surgery on a chest muscle in 2018. Phil Hertz uh, wrote the story up for BaseballHQ.com and pointed out those injuries. And then you say, well, maybe he can go into the bullpen and pick up some saves there. And you think, well, maybe so, but they got Jordan Hicks. They got Andrew Miller, whom they paid a lot of money to in the offseason, to presumably to pick up some leverage innings in the St. Louis bullpen. Uh, Carlos Martinez is sort of looking to me like a guy whose role is so undefined that it really starts to become extremely risky to roster him in any spot where you could get almost anybody else who's going to get you know 130 innings of 360 370 type era yeah i think you're right i mean this is a situation that is very muddy at the moment uh lots of uh, lots of way different ways that it could play out uh and so if i were drafting carlos martinez uh, i would look at other pitchers around him who may have similar skills and may be more reliable in terms of their role. And finally, Ryan Bloomfield, uh, who did a great job in the labor mix draft, by the way. I've been listening to other podcasts and people talking about the labor draft, and everybody's saying Ryan Bloomfield did a fantastic job, so good for Ryan, and we'll be watching that league with great interest. Uh, Ryan's also our speculator columnist. Uh, he writes about, we call it the 20% chance. Uh, most of what we do is looking for the 70 or 80% chance of what's going to happen. Ryan looks at the 20% chance of what might happen. And uh, he, his most recent speculator column, Nick, was called searching for the next Blake Snell and of course wouldn't we all love to find the next Blake Snell and one of the names that came up in uh, Ryan's filtering and examination was Pittsburgh right-hander Joe Musgrove and you know what let me comment too one of the things I really like about the speculator columns is is that uh, uh, the writers Ryan and, and, and anyone else uh, who writes on that column they're not just guessing uh, the the speculator column is based on uh, the data that, that's out there and relies pretty heavily on that data. And you, as you say, it's a 20% chance, but uh, certainly the data says that Joe Musgrove is worth looking at. Last season, a 4.06 ERA, a 3.91 XERA, but a 7.8 DOM and a 1.8 control. Those are very strong numbers, a 116 BPV. Sounds like he could do much better than for a 4 ERA this season. Uh, last season, he leaned on a devastating changeup a lot more often than he had before. A slider was getting whiffs and ground balls, a 50% ground ball rate. Uh, filthy second-half skills. 72% uh, 
First pitch strike rate, 13% swinging strike rate, 5.3 command, 123 BPV. One of those second halves that makes you look up look uh, and say, whoa, there's some good stuff going on here. He's had trouble staying healthy, has not thrown 120 innings in a season yet. But only Ryan points out that only six other pitchers, minimum of 100 innings, match those that sub-indicator combo from 2018. Those pitchers were Kershaw, Nola, Severino, Verlander, Tanaka, and Stripling. Pretty good company. That makes it look like that up that we called in the forecast of a 3.50 ERA. That's certainly in play. Uh, and uh, Joe Musgrove is age 26. Uh, that's an age when guys frequently break out. Uh, his pitch mix is looking good. Uh, certainly a lot of reason to speculate on Joe Musgrove at this point. Yeah, and we should caution that we're not talking about Joe Musgrove as a the kind of guy who's a growth story that kind of leads you to think this this is likely to happen. As Ryan freely admits, this is something that might happen. And there's a huge difference between those two things when you're trying to consider where you want to draft Joe Musgrove. His ADP uh, that Ryan reported was in the 239 range, so he's actually getting uh, well down into the draft. You're talking about maybe a 4 or $5 pitcher. And uh, Joe Musgrove's health issues first of all, should not be under understated. There's a fairly good chance he won't even be in the rotation at the start of the year because he's still recovering from abdominal surgery. And, of course, we don't know what abdominal surgery means because we don't have the medical report. But if you've had surgery on your abdomen, that's that can be a pretty tough thing because your abdomen, if you're a pitcher, is where you generate all the torque you know, transferring up from your legs. And if your abdomen is weak, then you're not going to be able to throw as well as you might otherwise. And I think that's problem number one for me. And problem number two is anytime you're doing an analysis that relies or leans on second half statistics, that to me is something that you've got to be very careful about because the second half of a season is just an arbitrary division of time. And, you know, people say, well, if you combine, if you just double his second half, it would be a fantastic season. And you say, yeah, but if you double his first half, it's a terrible season. So why do we pick the second half? Because it's the most recent thing that happened, right? And I, I think that's, a, that's dangerous. I, I agree. You need, you need to be very careful of that. You know, I, I think Joe Musgrove, you're right about where he's going. At 230, uh, 239 ADP, um, that makes him hopefully the fourth or fifth pitcher on your staff. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there, there are lots of other guys you could look at who may not have the kind of upside that, that Joe Musgrove potentially has at that point in the draft. Uh, and for me, that's a good point where I take some risks and think, uh, okay, if this guy doesn't work out, I can go back in the waiver wire and probably matches uh, his performance with somebody who's uh, less speculative, shall we say. Right. It's uh, about the end of the 16th round. and I think I'd be comfortable at that point uh, taking a chance on Joe Musgrove if I didn't have any better options in that sort of range. When I looked at you know, my draft grid and I say I've got six pitchers in here I could choose from, I might lean against Joe Musgrove for the risk reasons that we cited, but there's not a lot of great pitchers at pick 240 in, in any mixed league. Um, so, you know, why not? Right, right. I mean, it becomes one of those things where maybe the risk is worth taking. And maybe you just don't write it too long into the season if it's not working out. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League. It's Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here as always. 
Hasn't been a lot going on in the American League pending the uh, potential signing of Bryce Harper, but I think most uh, portents are saying National League for him as well after Manny Machado. So let's start with some health and injury news. Uh, statistics tell us that pitchers get hurt more uh, often than hitters, and that might make us oversensitive to the risk of pitcher injury and to overestimate the true level of the risk. In Matt Cederholm's Big Hurt Injuries column, he discussed the health risks of a bunch of players including Houston starters Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander, and he said basically that the risk of injury with those two starters is overstated. How come? Well, I think he was looking at the um, the baseball HQ um, health grades, and, and that's always a good a good place to start out if you're looking uh, to, to see how how durable a player might be. It, it, it raises good red flags. Um, and, and Verlander has a C health score. Cole has a D. Obviously, we'd be a lot happier if they had Bs or As. Uh, this sounds worrisome, but uh, but maybe not. Our health grades, again, are just a starting point, uh, a way to wave a red flag. Uh, they also remind us to, uh, to look beyond the, the snapshot view at the player's broader health history, especially recently. And if you look at it from that angle, it's a different pic- picture. Uh, Verlander hasn't had a DL stint since 2015. So three straight seasons of 100% uh, play. Cole's been on the field since 2016. Um, Verlander is going into his age 36 season, so he still carries a little risk. And Cole had some injuries in 2014 and 2016. And that carries a little bit of apprehension. But overall, from a health perspective, I, I, I think Verlander and Cole were relatively low risk. Yeah, Jock, I think you're right. The The idea that Matt was trying to get across is that the health risk is not entirely captured in a single letter. And you mentioned it would be nice if Verlander had an A grade or a B grade or Garrett Cole had an A grade or a B grade. But there are players in Matt's column who did get A grades and B grades and are actually have higher injury risks than that might suggest. So I, I think the bottom line here is use it as something to look at, but do your due diligence. Yeah, exactly. Go beyond the stats. Uh, Obviously, a player with a, a pitcher with an arm injury at the end of last year, for example, is a lot riskier than, say, Cole or Verlander. Uh, a, a position player who uses a leg, somebody who's who's really dependent on stolen bases for value if they had leg injuries uh, last year, uh, are, are going to be a lot riskier than these two guys are. And a good example of that might be the uh, Francisco Lindor injury. It's a calf injury, and it's going to take a while to heal. And you might think, okay, when he's healed, he'll be done. He'll be back. He'll be his old self. But a guy whose game is based on speed, maybe a calf injury has got to be considered a little more seriously when you're assessing how much you want to pay in an auction or what round you want to go or what slot you want to go with, uh, with Lindor in a draft this year based on that injury. Yep, that's exactly right. So, uh, yeah, you got to look beyond the stats a little bit here. Staying on the injury theme, Jock, uh, your Angels' Justin Upton is reportedly dealing with some tendonitis in his right knee, patellar tendonitis to be specific, and he's expected to be brought along pretty slowly in spring training. You wrote up this story in Playing Time today. What's going on with Justin Upton? Well, I'm not too concerned. Obviously, this is not something, if you're an Upton owner, that that you want to hear. Better you hear it now at the beginning of uh, spring training uh, um, he, he's a he's a solid fantasy outfielder. He hasn't had leg issues in the past. Uh, I wouldn't read too much into this uh, early in the spring. Uh, it's just something to, to keep an eye on. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, I had some patellar tendonitis in my younger days when I was uh, a runner. I ran on the roads, so, you know, you get that, jar, that kind of jarring injury, and it really wasn't that serious. It's the kind of thing that we dealt with usually with some anti-inflammatories and maybe a bit of rest, but uh, I don't think there's any reason to be concerned, but... I'm not a professional athlete, and I don't put the kind of strain on my body, even when I was running pretty regularly, that a major league ball player does. What if this does turn out to be something? Well, right now, the fourth outfielder is Michael Hermosillo. Um, I I don't have him very high up on my watch list. Uh, uh, he struggled in his 2018 debut, and he's... And, and he's um, um, currently recovering from surgery, so he's already questionable for opening day. The Angels have also brought in, uh, brought back, I should say, journeyman Peter Borjos and Cesar Puello, both of whom have been on the Angels before. They're probably next in line. Uh, you know, again, particularly for these names, it's just way too early to be speculating on any of this. Uh, I'm just going to, because of what I do and looking at uh, playing time tomorrow and playing time today, I'm going to be checking in on it occasionally, but uh, not something that's actionable right now. Yeah, I thought so too. And and what I thought was, I'll be watching. I like Justin Upton actually this year. He's going at a, what seems to be a pretty good price, and I I would I'm going to think if I see that he's coming along slowly, he's not running early in the spring training. Maybe he's uh, being taken out of games a little uh, earlier than we might expect, given where they are in spring training. I'm not going to put as much weight on that as I ordinarily might, because I know that they're probably going to baby him along, try to make sure he's fully ready and 100 um, percent all right when the real games start. Yeah, that's right. And he's not a guy who you depend on for stolen bases. He usually gets a handful every now and then. But uh, um, again, you're, you're more concerned that Justin Upton is in shape to, to play a corner outfield spot and hit home runs. So um, that, that's what I'm looking for. Well, while we're talking about Angels in the outfield, maybe this is a good time to talk about Jordan Adele. He's the Angels' top prospect. I see his name pop up all the time on experts' publications and websites. They're all saying that Adele should be somebody we look at this spring. And Richard Justice, this caught my eye, a columnist at MLB.com, said, and I quote, to project him in the same lineup with Mike Trout this season is not a stretch. So if this up-to-knee thing, Jock, turns out to be something more serious, what chance do we have of seeing Jordan Adele breaking camp with the Angels this year, or if not, maybe a promotion in this same 2019 season? I think breaking camp is, is really a stretch. I just I just don't see it happening. He has uh, something like 60-some-odd, uh, 66 at-bats at the AA level. Um, then again, if you think about it, we thought that, I mean, if, if you'd asked me the same question about Juan Soto last year, I would have said that's a stretch. Now, he didn't break camp with Washington, but obviously he came up in May and had a had a terrific season. Uh, I mean, Adele is definitely a star on the rise. He's 19. He's going to turn 20 in April. I got to watch him play a couple of times in the high A-League last year, and I'm looking forward to watching him in person next week in Arizona. Um, he jumped three levels last year. He went from A to high A to double A. It's pretty good movement for a, for a 19-year-old, uh, and his stats were pretty good. 897 OPS, 20 home runs, 15 stolen bases against only three caught stealings. He was never overmatched uh, in, the, in the first two levels. He struggled a little bit at high A last year, which is to be expected, particularly at the end of the year. Um, when you realize how young he is and how far he's come, the 111 walks, or I'm sorry, 111 strikeouts in 396 at-bats don't look all that bad. He walked 32 times. They, they need some effort. Uh, um, I, I'll say this about Adele. Uh, 
I think LA, I, I think the Angels want want to see him succeed badly, particularly with Trout under contract for the next couple seasons. Uh, um, and it's not unheard of, obviously, for a 20-year-old to suddenly jump to the bigs. But I, I guess my overall take on this is I don't think he has a chance to break out of spring training. And I think it's only a slim chance to see him at the end of the year. But it really depends on what he does, and I, and I wouldn't put it past him. If I'm a dynasty owner, I want Adele because I think he has a huge 2020 opportunity in front of him, regardless of what he does in 2019. I think you made a good point about the uh, AA struggles that uh, Jordan Adele had, and uh, it makes me think that we underestimate for a guy that young, barely starting out in his pro baseball career, those 66 at-bats at AA, that was at the end of a season that was probably already 50% longer than any season he's ever played in, even even at uh, you know sort of the more senior levels of, uh, of pre-Major League Baseball. He could have just been real tired, and it's it could be uh, missing the point somewhat for us to say, oh, he struggled at double A, I'm going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I understand that, but you know he, he hammered the hell out of the ball at those first two levels, and the drop-off we wouldn't think would be that bad. Give the guy a break. I'd like to see him go back to double A to start this year and see if he rakes and gets promoted quickly to triple A. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting situation because Cole Calhoun's uh, – uh, contract is up uh, at the end of this year um i have no doubt that the angels probably won't sign him again um i think jordan adele could make things interesting if he tears through double a this year uh he's he he uh, I'll, I'll agree with richard justice in that he is a player to watch this is his first spring training i've got a couple of angel games on on the schedule for for next week uh, i'm heading out there next friday through uh through the following friday um and i look forward to watching him play on to some more regular news, some signings. Uh, none of this is really big news, but in fantasy baseball, you want to know what's going on. Josh Harrison signed a one-year deal with Detroit. What do you think we should expect from Josh Harrison with the Tigers? You know, he had some productive years in Pittsburgh, uh, the best of which a couple of them. He offered double-digit home runs and stolen bases, but uh, he missed most of April and May last year with a hamstring injury and then the, a bulky hamstring uh, kind of made him a part-timer at bat-wise and cut into his running game. He only had three stolen bases in uh, in 344 at-bats after several years of averaging uh, uh, double-digit stolen bases. His power is very intermittent. Um, it looks like he's going to take over what appeared to be an otherwise problematic uh, second-base spot, uh, turning Nico Goodrum into a utility. Um, uh, you know, the, the one question is, is, is can his legs uh, rebound a little bit in uh, um, in, uh, uh, in in Comerica? Um, Comerica power-wise actually plays a lot better for right-handed hitters uh, power uh, power-wise um, than um, than PNC Park did in Pittsburgh. Um, the Tiger offense is a little sketchy, dependent on a Mike a Miguel Cabrera comeback. Uh, um, I, I think your I think fantasy owners would be bottom fishing here and hoping they get lucky on the margins. I actually think I'd rather have Goodrum, who's now ticketed to be a, a utility player. So in in the early run, at least, we're thinking Goodrum's going to be the playing time loser? Yeah, I think he's going to bounce around to different positions. Um, he, he qualified at three or four different positions, I think, last year. Um, he's likely to, to, to play a lot of first base, uh, particularly if, uh, if Detroit's trying to protect the legs of Miguel Cabrera by putting him at uh, at DH. 
In another meh sort of announcement, former big league closer Tyler Clippard signed a minor league deal with Cleveland a little under $2 million. This has gone from being a pretty solid bullpen in Cleveland to a pretty weak bullpen in Cleveland because of all the guys who have left. So it looks like Clippard could be in line to win a major league job, but does that make him a fantasy buy? Yeah, I I think he will win a job. I mean, he he pitched in Toronto last year and and against a lot of AL East teams. His numbers weren't weren't awful. I, I was a little surprised he had issues finding work. Uh, but but as Tom Kephart reported in his Playing Time Today piece, the, his biggest problem is an extreme fly ball tilt and and a and a big home run late. Uh, his ERA and WHIP has really risen over the last uh, three years uh, up into the to the mid-high threes and even into the fours. He had a 4.77 ERA in 2017. Uh, it dipped a little bit last year. But those home runs and fly balls are a little scary. Now, he has some some saves in his history. Um, but with those fly ball and home run issues, even in Cleveland, I, I can't see him sniffing many of these, particularly with, uh, with Brad Hand as the closer. Uh, unless you need innings pitched out of the pen and, and some strikeouts, he's not a great target. Jock, I'll go you one better. I think he's a terrible target and somebody that's really not rosterable until he proves something in 2019. Uh, there's lots of middle relievers. We know that from Ron Chandler years ago talking about the Lima plant. These guys are literally just f- all over the place in Major League Baseball. And even more now that the uh, teams are expanding their pitching staffs at the expense of their uh, batting lineups, a guy like Clippard can be found anywhere at any time. And if you're talking about, as you said, a relief pitcher in Cleveland who gives up a lot of fly balls and tends to give up a lot of hard-hit fly balls, I think I'm going to pass. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I would rather take a chance on somebody who's on a roll coming up uh, from the minors uh, with a big swing and miss rate and certainly a better ground ball rate than Clippard. Clippard's ground ball rate last year was 19%. That leaves about 81% or 80% for line drives and fly balls, and that's not a good formula. It's especially not a good formula for a relief pitcher who might be called on to come in with runners aboard and uh, you know light the whole thing on fire, which means he loses his job, and then you've wasted a, a roster slot on a guy who was not very good to begin with and then is gone anyway. I think the thing about guys like Clippert is the opportunity cost. Sure, you can roster him, but then the question you have to ask yourself is, who didn't I roster because I rostered Tyler Clippert? And the chances are, if you know anything about how to seek out a, a good relief pitcher, the answer is almost certainly going to be someone better. <laughs> you know, you could have had someone better, and you should. Yeah, you're right. It's a it's a missed opportunity cost. And a lot of times when I'm rostering my relief pitchers, even in my deep leagues, I'm looking for somebody who has a chance to get into the late inning mix, and uh, and maybe Clipper does in in uh, in Cleveland, and he and he has a background for it. But boy, oh boy, I'm looking at these last three years, and they're a little scary to me. Very scary indeed. And finally, Jock and still another deal that didn't quite hit the front pages of the sports section. Alcides Escobar signed a minor league deal with Baltimore. Uh, these are definitely going to be hard times in Camden Yards. But is there any chance that Escobar could win a job? get his running game back in order and offer some fantasy upside a la Jonathan VR. Yeah, you know, Matt Dodge in his Playing Time Today piece called it an insurance signing, and I, and I don't disagree with that, but when you look at 
um, the what the Orioles have at shortstop, Richie Martin and Drew Jackson, they're, they're both Rule 5 guys. I mean, and, and I get they're rebuilding. They have to see what they have. But these aren't top prospect pedigree guys. So, yeah, I, I think Escobar does have a chance of getting some significant playing time. As a fantasy owner, though, and as the Orioles, I'd sure hate to be in the position of depending on it. Uh, if he gets the job, all he really offers is speed. Um, he swiped eight bases last year, only caught twice. Um, so this was more of an oppor- a function of opportunity than anything else. And his stolen base percentage has been outstanding throughout his major league uh, uh, career, particularly in Kansas City the last eight years, over 75% for all but one of them. Um, so it's possible, yeah, he runs more. Um, the problem is he has no power, and he's really dependent on his hit rate for batting average. Uh, he hit below 200 in over 200 at-bats in the first half last year. Then he hit 280 uh, in uh, in just under 200 at-bats in the second half. And the, the difference is hit rate. It's all... Um, batting average on balls in play luck uh, and so that's what you're you're really going to be dependent on if he if he gets that luck he'll be in the lineup if you remember what Jonathan Villar did last year with the Orioles if he gets if 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 uh, Escobar gets the luck and is in the lineup it wouldn't surprise surprise me at all to see him steal 15 20 bases I just don't want to have to depend on him as a fantasy owner yeah, and the thing is, in today's stolen base environment, Jock, 20, 20 stolen bases is not to be overlooked. 20 stolen bases offers genuine fantasy value. The problem is, it also takes up a, a roster slot, and we're, we're learning more and more about the importance of viewing the roster slot as an asset in itself that you're plugging guys into, rather than saying the guy himself is the asset. And when I think about rostering a guy like Escobar, even if even if you guaranteed me he's going to get 15 stolen bases, I look at that situation and I go, yeah, but what else? And what you're telling me is nothing else. There'll be probably a low batting average, certainly no power, RBIs, that kind of thing, and he'll be hitting down the order in all likelihood. So all of a sudden you're looking at a guy who's not providing a lot of counting stats. He's maybe hurting your average, and in exchange for that, you get these stolen bases. I'd rather have a guy who got five stolen bases and hit 15 home runs or 12 home runs even. Yeah, I agree. And particularly now in what I think is a is a, a, a golden age of shortstops and shortstop prospects, if you've got Alcides Escobar at your shortstop spot, you have really screwed up your shortstop spot. Oh, that's certainly true. Yeah, the uh, shortstop spot's got all kinds of pockets of value and relatively large pockets of good value. So um, maybe in a league that doesn't have DL moves you have, and you have a, l- a large reserve, maybe you stash him at the end of the draft in case your real shortstop gets hurt and you need somebody for a couple of weeks. But yeah, I'm with you, Jock. Uh, Alcides Escobar, I'll pass on him too. I think you have to be really stolen base desperate to consider this. But, I, you know, I put it out there again when we're talking about stolen bases uh i would not be surprised to see that happen in 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 some deep leagues yeah in deep leagues it's a whole different ball game that's for sure and and uh, in an al only i will uh virtually guarantee that uh, escobar especially if he breaks camp looking like the number one guy he will be on rosters there's no doubt about that in my mind all right brother thanks a million we'll talk to you in phoenix uh, in seven days time all right man Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio.
When we return, our Baseball HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer, our market watch, position preview, and master notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, let me remind you about our popular First Pitch Forum Tour. It's underway and has sessions this weekend in Chicago on Saturday at noon and Atlanta on Sunday at noon. This year's program is designed around a huge survey we did about the 2019 season, helping to find such nuggets as five pitchers we can trust to sustain a sub-315 ERA despite a 4-plus expected ERA last season. There's a rookie hitter you want to know about who will be the most profitable at his draft price this season. And make your choice at closer from among Jose Leclerc, Kirby Yates, and Ken Giles. And the better rebound candidate between twins Byron Buxton and Miguel Sano. The tour continues March 8th in Boston, March 9th in New York, and March 10th in Greater D.C. And if you can't get to one of those events, you need to check out the new live online virtual seminar with interactive action. Get more details at BaseballHQ.com seminars. We'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the Market Watch position preview and master notes. And leading off, it's our frequent flyer comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Minnesota left-handed pitcher Lewis Thorpe, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He commands a two-seam fastball with solid bore to both sides of the plate, according to the 2019 Minor League Baseball Analyst. But that's not all. Lewis Thorpe, the 23-year-old Southpaw, who was recently named as the Minnesota Twins Minor League Pitcher of the Year in 2018, appears to be changing eye levels not only with this curveball, but also with his overall 2018 performance, striking out 157 batters in only 129 innings pitched. That translates to a dominance rate of 11 strikeouts per nine in 25 starts through two levels of the minors in 2018. Remember, we at BaseballHQ.com target pitchers with a dominance rate of nine strikeouts per nine or higher. But wait, take a look at this. Lewis Thorpe only walked 36 batters in 25 starts between AA and AAA in 2018. Let's put that in perspective. If we compare Lewis Thorpe's dominant 157 strikeouts to his meager 36 walks, we get a command ratio of 3.5 strikeouts to walks, ranking him among baseball's elite, according to Baseball HQ's benchmarks. But how does that likely translate at the major league level? By using BaseballHQ.com's major league equivalents, which effectively convert a minor league player's statistics into an equivalent major league performance level, we can see that Lewis Thorpe's exceptional dominance rate of 11 strikeouts per nine would likely have been equivalent to an 8.8 strikeouts per nine mark at the major league level in 2018, just slightly below our nine strikeouts per nine benchmark for elite pitchers. Plus, Lewis Thorpe's exceptional 354 minor league ERA in 2018 would likely have translated to a 462 ERA at the major league level. Ouch, that's a full point higher. That's why Lewis Thorpe, 
like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a log shot, who may be worth the flyer if he is still available deep, deep into your 2019 draft. But please remember with this model, we are only converting Lewis Thorpe's 2018 statistics or results into a major league equivalency, not projecting his future performance. So what might the future hold for this 2018 Futures game selection? After missing two full seasons, 2015 and 2016, due to Tommy John surgery, the Twins may still want to limit his workload. Lewis Thorpe has been ramping up, though, pitching 83 frames in 2017 and 129 innings in 2018. Plus, all sides are currently pointing to Lewis Thorpe, barring injury, making his Major League debut for the Twins in 2019. And maybe Lewis Thorpe should debut on your team in 2019 as well, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for our Market Watch position preview based on research by Matt Cedarholm for his Market Pulse column at BaseballHQ.com. And here with a scan of first baseman is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. The universal draft grid from our 2019 Baseball Forecaster shows only two players in the top tier, Paul Goldschmidt and Freddie Freeman. Their ADPs are 20 and 21 respectively. There are no first basemen in the first round. The questions start in the second tier. Is Cody Bellinger's sophomore slump his new normal, making his Rookie of the Year season an outlier? Can Anthony Rizzo get his bad back back in shape? Will Joey Votto come back? Third-tier questions include, can Jesus Aguilar repeat his stellar season? Are Jose Abreu and Edwin Encarnacion in decline? Can Ian Desmond play center field and still put up a 2020 year in course? The seven-member fourth tier comes with still more questions. Can Eric Thames find playing time? Can Miguel Cabrera find the field? Is Jake Bowers ready to rock in Cleveland, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And the beat goes on. The league breakdown strongly favors the National League, with eight of the top ten first basemen in the first three tiers. The American League is home to 15 of the 25 first basemen in tiers four and five, making the total about even, but the quality is clearly with the National League. It'll be tough sledding for AL-only leaguers, especially if their corner infielders come from the first base pool. So let's see if BaseballHQ.com's Matt Cedarholm has any answers for us in his first base market pulse analysis. Skills-wise, Joey Votto's 2018 was similar to his outstanding 2016, but with very different results. At age 35, he may not repeat that 2016, but Cedarholm says to get him where we have him ranked, which is in the third round at 42. Votto's ADP is in the fifth round at 76. Jesus Aguilar's strong 2018 was totally supported by his skills, so he's going two rounds too late. Target him in round five. Jose Abreu saw his five-year streak of 25 homers and 100 RBIs come to an end in 2018, but as Bob Berger found in his facts and flukes analysis of Jose Abreu, his underlying skills were not significantly different. Edwin Encarnacion's contact skills have declined somewhat, but Cedarholm asks a question of his own. Is that due to his age or to his selling out for power? EE's ADP is 124 in the 8th round. That's 88 slots later than we rank him in the 3rd round at 36. Target him as a 5th round bargain. Luke Voigt is a gamble. 
His 12th round ADP of 180 is more than three rounds earlier than our ranking of 231. Neither the batting average over 300 nor the home run per fly ball rate over 40% from his small sample of 143 at-bats will repeat. He has some upside from his projection, but don't overpay. Instead of speculating on him, wait for Carlos Santana. Santana is a bargain at his round 13 ADP of 189, 127 slots, and eight rounds after our ranking of 62. Santana projects better than Voigt in every category and comes with reliability grades of AAB for health, playing time, experience, and consistency. Now for two overreaches to avoid. We have Yonder Alonso ranked at 394 and he's going at 299. That's six rounds and 95 slots too soon. But how about Ryan O'Hearn's differential of 504 slots? We say O'Hearn was a flash in the pan during his 149 at-bats September call-up and rank him at 831. His hot streak is not supported by his 2,358 at-bat minor league sample, yet his ADP is 327. Looking for some late round bargains or dollar days discounts? Ryan Healy has the same statistical profile as Kyle Schwarber, but Healy is going 11 rounds later. We rank Healy in the 12th round at 169 and he's going 200 picks later at 369, which is round 25. Another great buy is Wilmer Flores. His ADP has been slow to move up since he signed with Arizona to be their primary second baseman. His 2018 contact rate of 89% was elite, and he's shown above-average power, so he's well-positioned for a breakout. Cedarholm suggests grabbing Flores in the 12th round. Let's conclude by mentioning some first-base prospects for Dynasty Leaguers. Cedarholm uses Peter Alonso to advise against reaching too far for youth with upside. Alonso's ADP of 260 makes some sense in the 17th round, especially if he wins the job in spring training. But that's 369 slots above our ranking of 629. Scouts have compared Alonso to Paul Canerco, but there are concerns that Alonso's defensive limitations might mean waiting for the universal DH. Ray's first base prospect Nathaniel Lowe could make an impact this season. Lowe is a patient hitter with an all-fields approach. To recap, league breakdowns strongly favor the NL, so first base could be more difficult than usual in AL-only leagues and is no longer a sure source of corner infielders. For a precise picture of player rankings and values specific to your leagues, use the custom draft guide at BaseballHQ.com. And stay ahead of your league mates with our Market Pulse series. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he'll have our position preview series throughout spring training. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about my first annual HQ Wonk Draft. You want to brace yourself for a lot of commentary arising out of the new HQ Wonk Fantasy League. It's a 5x5 auction keeper made up entirely of Baseball HQ writers. You'll have an opportunity to read about Wonk's strategies, tactics, and observations in Roto Gaming columns soon to arrive. In fact, there are already three articles about the Wonk's strategies, tactics, and observations that I know of, and another one's going to come out this week. If that's not enough for you, you should consider getting professional help. By which I mean, of course, yet another column about the HQ Wonk League, professionally prepared by me. In the run-up to the draft, our league members were actually talking about an idea that the last place finisher in the league would have to be roundly mocked at First Pitch Arizona. Suggestions for the mocking included a dunk tank and a sandwich board. Not at the same time, as far as I remember. Ray and Brent have plenty to do at the event, so the last thing they need is explaining that crime scene to Phoenix Police. 
Anyway, the auction was interesting, as auctions usually are, mostly to the people in them. Again, you'll be reading plenty about it at the Baseball HQ site, so I'm just going to mention some of my personal observations, highlights, and lowlights. The inaugural wonk draft started with 13 rounds on Tuesday and the remaining 10 rounds on Wednesday. Reserves come later. I went into it with my usual optimistic mix, fear, dread, nervousness, and fatalism. I had a loose strategy going in. I was going to see how the early pricing was going and then respond to it. The early pricing was, to use a baseball analytical term, berserk. Mike Trout and Mookie Betts went for $60 plus a piece. I reacted or overreacted by dropping 50 scoons myself on Jose Ramirez, based on the analysis that Ramirez was a clear number three in snake drafts, and so he should be worth a premium of the same $10 or so over his true value than the Baseball HQ Custom Draft Guide. In fact, a $10 premium would be less than what the two superstars fetched. I thought this was a pretty sharp analysis of the situation. Of course, I started questioning the sharpness of that analysis just seconds after the hammer dropped on Jose Ramirez. In fact, I had a spasm of buyer's remorse like the one that Del Delacroix had in the Green Mile. But buyers boldly bandying big bucks made me feel better, and a lot more alliterative. Trey Turner went for $56. Alex Bregman for the same 50 I spent on Jose Ramirez. Nolan Arenado and Christian Yelich went for $49 each. J.D. Martinez for 45 Cody Bellinger for 44 Manny Machado went for 43 Francisco Lindor and Bryce Harper, 42 Anthony Rendon, Paul Goldschmidt, and Ronald Acuna for 41 And Charlie Blackman and Jose Altuve for $40. When I look at that, 50 bucks for Ramirez looks okay and I hope I don't curse myself with that observation. Thus emboldened, I also grabbed Trevor Story for $44, which again seemed pretty fair to me. Plus, there are all those plays on his name, which can be helpful to a baseball writer who's looking for a Trevor angle. Another aspect of my approach was based on emulating the current craze in straight drafts about pitching. All kinds of experts and NFBC players are taking starting pitchers earlier than ever, so I plan to invest in a couple of aces to anchor my staff on the theory that getting a lot of innings from low ERA whip guys would let me be more aggressive in grabbing those $1 and $2 endgame starters and speculative plays, given that their fewer innings would be offset by my aces and the endgamer relievers that I plan to grab. I was hoping to get Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole, because I rightly suspected that Max Scherzer and Jacob deGrom would go over my self-imposed $39 limit per guy. I also like those two guys because our league uses strikeouts minus walks in place of straight strikeouts, and both Verlander and Cole were top five in that measure last season. I got Verlander for just $33, leading me to believe that he had been hit by an asteroid before the draft and nobody told me. Cole went for 37 though, which would have put me over the self-imposed $69 limit for two starters. My consolation prize, Corey Kluber for 36, giving me my two ace foundation right on the button at 69 bucks total. If you're not keeping score at home, that meant I had spent $163 on four players. That's about $41 a piece. I competed on every player near his value for the whole rest of the first session, but landed very few. Brian Dozier, Jean Segura, and A.J. Pollock, mostly because I felt like I didn't have enough speed or injury potential. And of course, it wouldn't have been a Davit draft without a colossal blunder. In this draft, I paid $5 for Yonder Alonso, which was dumb, but not disastrous. 
but then I compounded the felony by stupidly going to $15 on Buster Posey. I literally had a list of more than 10 catchers to target for less than $10, and all of them went for less than $10, including Danny Jansen, who was my number one target. So if you'll excuse me, dumb, 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 and disastrous. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So we're heading for night two, and the bargain rush that's going to be like Black Friday at Walmart, but without the stately decorum and politeness. A few owners had mostly stayed out of the big bidding, and they had a really nice run in day two, swinging their big wallets to grab up a ton of mid-value players at very good prices. I did all right. I ended up with Brad Hand for $9, Andrew McCutcheon for 8 Corey Canable for 3 Jose Quintana and Jake Arrieta for $2 each, and then nine guys at a buck apiece. Brandon Belt, Cole Calhoun, Shinsu Chu, Josh Reddick, Odebel Herrera, Andrew Heaney, Stephen Matz, Pedro Strope, and Kurt Suzuki. How I got Suzuki is a funny story. And by funny, I mean, excuse me, dumb, 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 and disastrous. I had put Suzuki into my nomination queue quite a bit earlier in the draft, and when my turn came up to nominate, I thought I had clicked on the guy above him in the queue, but inadvertently I clicked on Suzuki, whom I obviously didn't need, since I already had a $15 Buster Posey, whom I didn't need. Not surprisingly, Having $1 players was hardly an outlier in this HQ Wonk inaugural draft. More than 80 players in all went for a buck apiece, and there were still plenty left of decent speculative guys when the auction ended. In the aftermath of the draft, I thought I had done okay, but my Rotolab software disagreed. It said I came out of the auction with the top team by HQ Projections. Some of the owners played for the future, did I mention it's a keeper league? By rostering guys like Vladito for $36, Fernandito that's Fernando Tatis, for $22, Nikito, that's Nick Senzel, for $19, Peter Call Me Pete Alonzo for $14, and Keston Hayura for $10. Personally, I didn't come out of the draft with any notable prospects, but we're going to have a 17-round reserve draft, and I'll try to catch up with that. So next up, for me, the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational on Sunday, February 24th. I drew the number 14 slot, which Todd Zola immediately emailed to me as the one slot that didn't win any championships in the NFPC last year. So wish me luck. And if you're drafting this weekend, have a great time. And if you're not drafting, eh, have a great time anyway. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Masternodes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Masternodes for free at the Baseball HQ website every week. And we have Masternodes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, February 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number six of the 2019 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news hounds were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. And our Market Watch position preview was presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. 
You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you're getting your podcasts, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating if they'll let you. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Tuesday with a Tuesday Tout edition featuring an in-depth interview with Rob Silver from Baseball Prospectus and the Launch Angle podcast. That's Rob Silver on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.